Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Well, I hope everybody's paying attention today because we have a special guest calling in from Texas, and his name is Max Marshall. And he's talking about something in my backyard, uh, which is the College of Charleston. And yes, sir. a bunch of guys who were drug dealers and had an interesting life. So I want to welcome you to the show, Max. How are you doing today? Thanks so much. Yeah, it's good to be here. Excited to talk. So how did you find out about this story to write about it? Sure. So yeah, I was in college the same time as basically all the guys in this book. So that's 2012 to 2016. And when I was in college, I was in a fraternity and I saw kind of a surprising amount of Xanax flying around, both as an anxiety drug, but even more so as this kind of party drug that everyone would take to to black out faster and to mix with all sorts of other drugs. And it got me asking a few questions like, A, why was Xanax sort of this like it drug for my generation? It's kind of a weird, if you think of like, you know, the 60s and weed or acid or the 80s and cocaine, it's kind of odd that like my generation is blacking out on anti-anxiety tranquilizers. So that was one question. And then the other was, where is this Xanax coming from? Because it wasn't real Xanax. It wasn't made by Pfizer or CVS. It was this like chalky fake Xanax that would show up to people's dorm rooms in these boxes. And so after college, I became an investigative journalist. And (laughs) I guess like investigative journalists do, I just got on Google and searched Xanax bust fraternity. And the first result was this article in the Charleston Post and Courier about these guys in KA and SAE and some other guys in the low country who got caught with a few pounds of cocaine, a dozen pounds of weed, assault rifle with a grenade launcher. And the press release, I think, said 44,000 pills. So ultimately, I started investigating and found out it was closer to to 3 million pills. And that's kind of when everything took off. 3 million pills. I mean, you think about that today with this fentanyl issue. Yeah. and, and stuff flying around because I've heard, you know, my daughter goes to school here in Charleston. She got accepted to COC. And, you know, there's some high school kids that have died because Xanax has had this fentanyl in them. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, part of what got me writing this book is I had had friends who had overdosed and, you know, they say one pill kills when it comes to fentanyl. And when it's coming from these sort of black market, dark web supply chains, which is ultimately all this stuff was coming over through China via the dark web being smuggled in and like printer cartridges and the kids had their own pill presses. But when like these supply chains are obviously completely unregulated and like, yeah, you have no idea what's inside them. So how, how were they... Obviously, they were successful with their product. I mean, you know, was the product pretty much what you could get from a prescription? Yeah, I mean, it would kind of vary. Like, it was, you were kind of playing pill roulette a little bit in that, like, if it would sit in, because it was so chalky, if it would sit in the sun or if it would sort of, you know, get sort of ground down to a powder, sometimes like extra powder would get on a different pill and the pill would be twice as strong or something. But yeah, it had the the active ingredient, which is alprazolam, which uh, works very effectively at basically slowing down the chemistry in your brain. And it works a lot like having, you know, seven or eight beers, honestly, which is why people will mix it with five or six beers and feel like they had 15. But yeah, it was still very, very potent. So when you started diving in to the story, I mean, you don't think, you know, the South, Southern, South Carolina, 
I mean, you you don't think about this type of thing going on. I mean, what did what was your thoughts when you started unveiling, you know, some of these situations within the story? And and how did you how did you go after this? Yeah, I mean, one thing that surprised me kind of from the beginning is I would talk to guys at other fraternities around the South. So, you know, Georgia SAE or fraternities at North Carolina, South Carolina, Ole Miss, and they would all be like, oh, yeah, this stuff all all comes from Charleston first. And I'd never thought, obviously, of Charleston as this like hub. But the way people kind of described it to me is, you know, I-95 is the cocaine highway that connects Miami to New York. And so stuff will sort of pull off that and come into the low country. Also, Charleston being a port city, stuff is coming in, you know, just through import export. And then also because of just the sort of food bev hospitality boom and the amount of bachelorette parties, bachelor parties, people coming in, there's just this built in customer base that kind of comes every weekend. And so that combined with you know, all the really wealthy kids coming into College of Charleston, it kind of made for a drug dealer's paradise. And the fraternity system is a great way to sort of move it because you have all these pledges that are running errands. You have these big houses with kids with money where you can have, you know, 30, 40 customers at once. And so, yeah, I mean, I was surprised just how smoothly everything ran really until this murder happened at spring break 2016, this student Patrick Moffley. But up until then, like everything was a very finely oiled machine. And then, yeah, in terms of like the reporting, it took a very long time to earn people's trust because it's such a closed bubble. And it really took reading like thousands of police files and kind of like getting a trying to just show that, you know, the story and not grasping in the dark. And then ultimately, you know, you meet someone for a beer downtown and they say, you got to meet my boy. And then it kind of goes from there. So when you talk about this Patrick Moffey guy, what was yep. what was the situation about the murder? So yeah, Patrick Mothley's from uh, Charleston. He his dad was a big time real estate developer in the South. His mom ran for Congress. She's on the Charleston School Board, and he was kind of this like wild surfer party boy. And when he showed up to College of Charleston, pretty quickly he got involved in this drug ring. He was like wearing Tyvek suits and using heat sealers to basically take these like Skittles bags and like fill them with Xanax and then seal it again and ship them. And uh, you know he got arrested with a decent amount of cocaine at a a Gamecocks tailgate. But on the First Friday, spring break 2016, at his house on Smith Street, which is like a block from campus, they found him with a bullet hole in his chest that he was holding a Chipotle napkin to, and he was surrounded by hundreds of these fake Xanax pills. And so the police basically all of a sudden were like, okay, well, how did how did a student at CFC get access to these hundreds of chalky fake Xanax pills? And that's when the DEA got involved. That's when the FBI got involved. And next thing you know, this like all these students basically started wearing wires on each other and flipping on each other. And that's kind of what led to the downfall of this whole thing. And, and what were some of the other guys? Were most of these guys local? Where were most of these guys from? Yeah, I mean, guy, let's see, one from Myrtle Beach, um, another from that area, guys from Atlanta, guys from upstate. But yeah, it was, it was and then one guy from North Carolina. But was, everyone's basically from the region. But one thing that makes College of Charleston kind of specific is you have all these guys, kind of local guys from South Carolina, from the South, a lot of people on in-state tuition. But then also there's so many kids in Charleston from or at College of Charleston from Greenwich, Connecticut, Westchester, these really, really wealthy New England suburbs who kind of come down to CFC uh, and see it. I think, they, you know, some would call it like Camp Charleston, this kind of uh, boarding school without the nerds feeling. And so you have just so much wealth flying around as well. And I think that 
really fed into all of this. And what were some of the things that were under uh, discovered through once the FBI got involved? Yeah, I mean, some of it, like you know, was like finding out about the the sort of supply chain, right? Which was bringing in alprazolam powder from using the dark web. So like the browser tour, shipping it through Canada and then shipping it down to these beach houses outside Charleston, hidden in printer cartridges. And then they would take these printer cartridges, open them up. There was a bunch of alprazolam powder and they had these industrial pill presses that could print out hundreds of thousands of pills a month. And then they would ship these pills through the dark web, but they would also use fraternity pledges to sort of ship them around the South. And then there was this guy, Mikey Schmidt, who's the main character of the book, who had dropped out of College of Charleston, moved back to Atlanta, and gotten very involved in like the Atlanta rap scene, uh, 808 Mafia, Waka Flocka Flame, Magic City Strip Club. And he had a cartel source in Atlanta that he would get, you know, cartel quality cocaine from, and then sort of bring it to all these fraternity houses around the South, swap it for the Xanax pills, and then take the Xanax around the South as well. So sort of this cycle involving China, Mexico, Atlanta, Canada, Charleston, and all sorts of other places too. A lot of fraternity houses. Now this this was this Patrick guy? Patrick was involved in the, the drug ring, but the guy in Atlanta was, uh, his name was Mikey Schmidt. Mikey Smith. Yeah. So was he the, he the leader of this thing? or? Well, you know, it's like as much as the police wanted to make it look like it was uh, sort of, uh, you know, a, a drug ring that you could put all the photos and draw the arrows. In some ways, it was more like Herbalife or Cutco or Mary Kay or some multi-level marketing network. Or, you know, depending on how you feel about those things, Pyramid Scheme, where like you had multiple people with pill presses multiple people with dark web accounts, all sorts of different distribution networks. And it was basically, you could buy, you know, a million pills for a few cents a pill, charge 10,000, you know, sell 10,000 pills for 50 cents a pill. But then by the time you were selling it to a kid in a CFC dorm or, you know, Ole Miss fraternity house, they might pay $7 a pill. And so the margins were just pretty crazy. Well, did the, did the college make any changes after this happened, you know, on how they surveil people and, and look at things within the school? Yeah. So, I mean, when it happens, a bunch of fraternities were shut down. And this was at the same time, this was 2016, a lot of fraternities nationwide were getting shut down. But something that happened at CFC and sort of nationwide is basically most of those fraternities, if not all, were allowed to come back to campus like four years later. So the two main fraternities in this ring at Culture Charleston were KA and SAE. KA got kicked off campus for four years and then came back in 2020, and SAE never left at all. When you talk about the good old boys network, did you did you run into any situations where people are trying to hide things from you, and, and what did that look like? Definitely. I mean, I think because most of the guys in this drug ring ultimately got away with it. So not only did the were the fraternities allowed to come back to campus, but as of today, really only one person from all those police mugshots is still in prison. Most of the guys got probation. So yeah, there was just a lot to kind of hide. And everyone from the fraternities to guys in the ring were, yeah, they had different sort of methods of, of trying to keep me from. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. From finding out what happened. So did you, I mean, what was your intrigue? I mean, like when you outside looking in, not being from Charleston, not going to Charleston, based on where you're from, what did you initially think about this? And why did you think it's such a great story? I mean, the first thing that made me want to tell the story is I just felt like me and my friends weren't warned when we got to college, just how much Xanax we were going to see and just how bad it could be go if you started taking a lot of it like i don't and you know it varies school to school but certainly when i was a senior in high school there was a lot more warning about like oh don't smoke dope you know or <laughs> like some people actually called it dope but yeah don't don't smoke weed or you know uh look out for binge drinking but i think we all thought of xanax as something that you take you know your parents might take on a flight or something i had no idea it was one of two drugs that's so addictive you can die from from withdrawals it can give you seizures when you withdraw and you can die and it, and it happens. And so, yeah, I mean, I kind of knew this was like a generational story before I was looking at this specific Charleston story. But then, yeah, watching the way it played out with just the characters in this book and the sort of betrayals and the twists and the just the whole arc of it obviously became something much bigger once I started looking at it. So Mikey Smith, did you get to interview him directly? Yeah, so he's in Watery correctional institution for for 10 years and this isn't the case anymore but for the first few years that i was doing the reporting he had a black market cell phone that had been smuggled in um, that he was able to speak to me and yeah we talked all the time he was living in like a converted horse stable it's over 100 years old uh, horse fly infestation no air conditioning you know South Carolina summers, what that's like. But he had this phone and and yeah, we talked all the time and it took a long time to kind of earn his trust, but ultimately told, you know, he told his story. And, and what was he like? Was he a guy that just was trying to make money and got caught up in something that he realized later that, hey, I shouldn't have been involved with this or, or was he a true, you know, uh, criminal? Yeah, I mean, you know, he uh, he's in this kind of larger than life figure, metaphorically, if not literally, he he was five foot zero until his senior year of high school. And then he hit the seven inch growth spurt. His voice finally changed and he showed up to Charleston about five, seven. But when you spend your first 18 years of life without your voice having changed, you know, I think you develop this sort of, if you have a certain type of character, you develop a certain sort of swagger or confidence that you have to sort of like walk into any room with if you're going to talk to a girl whose voice is as high as yours. And so, yeah, he developed this sort of confidence and charm and ability to talk to all sorts of people. And he ended up kind of this crazy bridge between like the Atlanta rap world and the sort of country club world of all these kind of old South fraternity guys. And, and yeah. And then in the end, he was betrayed by his, his best friend in the fraternity who wore a wire on him. So I think now there's just 10 years to sort of sit with the the pain of that and, and really think about it. And, you know, so many of our interviews were almost like sessions talking, talking all that through. So was there anybody else from the Charleston area that went to school here that was involved in this besides this Patrick guy? Yeah, I mean, so... There, I talked to other guys from Charleston who had bought from the drug ring. 
who had been involved in smaller time kind of buying and selling, but specifically from Charleston of the, you know, the nine or the eight boys who were in those mugshots. No, they're all from different parts of South Carolina and the South. Interesting. So what are you looking, you know, this is kind of an awareness story to put out there to the younger people in the world. I mean, what is your goal and has anybody approached you about doing a film on the book? Yeah. So people have reached out about doing a film. Sony optioned the film right a few years ago and they have a screenwriter that's working on it. And since the book came out, a bunch of uh, documentary companies have reached out as well. And, you know, my goal for a movie is like, this is an absolutely wild, true story. I don't think they need to add a bunch of extra Hollywood salt on it to, to make it a good story. And so I just hope that whoever does end up making it, you know, kind of gets the story right. Because also, you know, talking about Charleston and you just when you're writing about the South, generally there's so many cliches and, you know, you can hear the, the pedal steel music coming in immediately or banjo or whatever Hollywood likes to use. And as a Texan who also has seen, you know, my home state portrayed in all sorts of kind of goofy ways, I just hope they get the sense of place right. Well, Charleston's a very unique place. I mean, now we have Soho House is coming to town, you know, we have a lot of big you know, entities showing up kind of in the, you know, the, I guess the chic hip space. Yeah. Do do you think that Charleston operates kind of in its own world in a way, kind of its its own city type? Definitely. I mean, I, I can't really, you know, there are cities that are sort of like Charleston. I mean, I, I guess some Savannah or something, but like, ultimately I don't, I can't think of any city on earth that's exactly like Charleston. It's this kind of crazy place where sort of the, the charm of the deep South and the sort of history of almost New England meet. And I think there's a reason people all up and down the Eastern seaboard go there. It's like, I've never seen a place that's as well preserved as it. I've also never, you know, there are other cities that people go and like to party. Obviously you got New Orleans or you got Austin, you got Nashville, but it really is this sort of, I'm sure you hear this all the time. If you tell people from out of state that you're from Charleston, I'm sure so many people are like, oh, I've had a crazy weekend in Charleston or, oh, I had this golf weekend that got away from me in Charleston or, oh, like this bachelorette party that spun out of control in Charleston. And so it's just this kind of wild combination of one of the most beautiful cities on earth, really. And this place where people really go to to have a, a pretty wild time. Very, very interesting. I just, uh, was there any other like unique pieces of the story that, that stood out to you that maybe we didn't touch on? I mean, I'm trying to think. I mean, like, you know, the, it goes kind of deep into the sort of fraternity life that's going on at these schools. Like I talked to a kid who got waterboarded during his hazing. And, you know, I think it, just trying to also show how this stuff really works from the inside. Like I was in a fraternity, basically everyone in my life was in fraternities. So like trying to give that sort of insider's guide to this sort of secret society that a lot of people only know the cliches about. So that, I mean, that's also a big part of the book, but but yeah, I'm really happy to answer any questions you have. So when you think about this, you wrote a book, is this your first, not first book you've written? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So yeah, I just turned 30 this year and yeah, the book came out last month. Now, is this your career? Since college, I've worked as a journalist, investigative journalist. You know, my first few years out of college, I was paying for for life by tutoring really wealthy like prep school kids in New York and was doing like album reviews on the side. But eventually, yeah, worked my way up to this. And this is the the first book. What's on tap for your next book? I'm thinking about writing a a biography of a a Texas oil tycoon. I can't can't say, say any more right now, but that's 
that's kind of what I'm working on. Although, you know, everything's been so crazy with this book. I, part of me wants to just take a Xanax and, and disappear for, for a month, but got to gotta march on. What is it like in your world when you have a book that has some success? What does that look like for a writer? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy because, you know, it's obviously such a solitary pursuit for years. You know, I started the first time that I thought about the story was in 2018. I've been working on it more or less full time since kind of late 2019. And for years, you know, you're telling people you're working on this stuff and they kind of nod politely. And then all of a sudden, this thing that has existed sort of in your own head or on your computer is out in the world. And your phone is buzzing all the time. And it's almost like a little drug high where you're just like getting all these notifications. And some of them are nice, some of them are mean, but it's just this, I imagine, you know, like you working in uh, in media, you're, you're used to that, like constant feedback loop more. But for like a solitary writer, it's a weird sort of head trip to all of a sudden go from, you know, like, you're just sort of sitting in your office for years. So all of a sudden your phone is just going, bzz, bzz, bzz. but then at some point, you know, that starts to slow down and you sort of have the, the drug come down and you start thinking about the next book and, and you go back into your cave. Nice. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I mean, the creative space, especially in this day and time, I would imagine is very, very hard. I mean, I'm writing a book now and it's very, very hard to have a successful book. So I applaud you for that. I mean, well, thank you so um, much. It's tough. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's a, t it's a tough marketplace out there and you never really know, you know, so many books come out and like th this could have been one of them where you sort of drop it into the ocean and it just falls to the bottom and makes no ripple at all. And maybe your mom or your, your wife read it and write a nice Goodreads review and that's kind of it. And then you, you're back to trying to write the next one. And that's always the risk. And it's kind of a crazy uh, thing to do. You're sort of like tinkering with something you hope can be a spaceship and then it takes four years and then you hit the launch button and you just watch it and it, you can't control it anymore. But uh, but yeah, so I've been, I've been very lucky. Nice, nice. Was there anything else we want to put out there before we get off here? The the book's called Among the Bros, a fraternity crime story. You can get it wherever books are sold, Amazon, Audible, local bookstores. Um, and yeah, and you can find my email on my website and, and reach out if you have any questions. Well, I think it's a, a great, great book. And I think it's a, a good run out the gate for Max and, and, and what you're doing. And I, I really, really feel that we are, we're probably going to see this on the big screen because it's so intriguing. It's rich. You know, you don't, you haven't really heard of many, you know, stories out of the Char Charleston area that are authentic. So hopefully that comes to light for you. Well, thank you so much. And yeah, it's good to, good to talk to someone in, in Charleston. Yeah. We'll, we'll get it out there and, you know, get content out there and, you know, a lot of people know about it in the area. And, but yeah, I, pre I appreciate you coming on the show and we were discussing, I just want to go over the book one more time. A among the Bros, a fraternity crime story by Max Marshall. You can get the book basically anywhere, Amazon, any book outlets. But I appreciate you coming on the show, Max Marshall. And I am John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much.